we need to create a new relationship with, with consumers, voters, and governments that has us all working together on an all-of-the-above solution to get us to a decarbonized future as fast as possible, which is also low-cost and reliable. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. This special edition of the podcast on the state of the industry was recorded at the Globe 2020 conference in Vancouver in February. At Globe, we released the report, The State of the Canadian Electricity Industry 2020, at a breakfast event. Following my presentation of the report to the crowd, we held a panel discussion with electricity industry senior executives. Tim Boston, Vice President, Public Policy and Government Relations at NMAX, facilitated the conversation, which featured Jay Graywall, President and CEO of Manitoba Hydro, Roger Dallantonia, President and CEO of Fortis BC, and Kate Chisholm, QC, Senior Vice President, Chief Legal and Sustainability Officer with Capital Power. So here is our panel of senior executives discussing the state of the electricity industry in 2020. My name is Tim Boston. I'm the uh, Vice President of Public Policy for NMAX. We're a a city-owned utility based in Calgary, but we service um, the entire province with generation. We're a retailer. We do wires from distribution to transmission. Um, And at our our plant, uh, Shepard, natural gas combined cycle plant, which is the um, uh, benchmark for gas generation in the country, um, in partnership with Capital Power, my colleague Kate, uh, that actually is the host of the COSIA X Prize uh, competition, which is uh, kind of an incubator for finding new technology to reduce emissions, uh, a, a quite an exciting project on site. I'm going to ask my colleagues to quickly introduce themselves and uh, the organization they work for, and then we have a, a, a just three prepared questions, and then we hope to open the floor to you folks to engage with us and ask your questions and have a more interactive dialogue. So maybe, Jay, I'll start with you, please. Good morning. My name's Jay Graywall. I'm the president and CEO of Manitoba Hydro. Uh, Manitoba Hydro is an electric company and we're also a distributor of natural gas. Uh, We are a crown corporation and uh, we probably, um, in two years after we finish building some key projects, we've got a balance sheet of about 30 billion. Good morning everyone, welcome to Vancouver, my hometown. I'm uh, Roger D'Antonio, President and CEO of Fortis BC. Uh, Here in BC, we're uh, primarily a natural gas distribution company and electric distribution company. Uh, We're in 135 communities, 56 indigenous communities across the province. Uh, Vertically integrated electric uh, utility uh, for hydro facilities in the Kootenays serving the interior and the Kootenays of BC and then gas distribution for uh, most of the province. Uh, As well, we're into uh, LNG uh, storage as well as export and we have uh, unregulated underground gas storage. We're part of the Fortis Inc. family, for those who know the Fortis story, based in St. John's, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. 
Uh, we're in 17 jurisdictions across North America and the Caribbean. Uh, we trace our roots back to, I think, 1860 or thereabouts. So we've got a pretty big footprint in the energy infrastructure space across North America. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm Kate Chisholm. Happy to be here. I'm Senior Vice President at Capital Power, which is a publicly traded independent power producer, which means we don't own any wires. All we do is make electrons. That's all we do. And we make them from everything from coal to gas to wind to solar. Uh, our coal units will have full natural gas capability by 2021. Uh, and uh, we uh, specialize, uh, our new focus is on carbon conversion. So we're capturing carbon from our, our stacks and converting the carbon into carbon nanotubes, which are useful for uh, mixing into cement, steel, and aluminum because they're stronger than steel, lighter than aluminum, and more conductive than copper. I always feel like I should wear a, a cape when I say that. But, uh, uh, and, <laughs> but and they, they not only uh, capture carbon from our stack, but they reduce downstream emissions in those industrial processes. So we're, we're very proud to be focused on that now. Thank you all. Uh, so starting off, um, as you've heard through <coughs> Francis's presentation, our relationship with electricity is changing. Safe, reliable, and sustainable electricity can help emissions reductions in other forms of energy while facilitating innovation and improving the customer experience, experience for each one of you. Electrification is a process, of course, of expanding the use of low carbon or zero carbon electricity for Canada's entire energy needs. By 2050, electricity will play a sustain, sustain, sorry, substantially greater role in Canada's overall energy use. Uh, nowhere low emission electricity can be leveraged to help reduce emissions across all sectors, including transportation, heating and cooling, and industrial processes. It's not really a question of whether electricity will be a part of the evolution, but how. Um, I'm going to start with Kate. Uh, Kate, wh what do you believe our sector's role in decarbonation and climate resiliency is going to be? My goodness, that's a big question. Uh, so you could answer that a number of ways, starting with the Jetsons, but uh, that's been done this morning. So um, uh, let's talk about this. Uh, over the next 20 years, the world's population is going to go from its current 7.7 .7 billion to 10 billion. Uh, but in the current 7.7 .7 billion, fully 16% of people don't have access to any electricity whatsoever. Um, and so on top of that, we're going to electrify. Uh, and all of those three things are going to increase demand substantially in different ways. And so you think, well, we're in Canada. Why do we worry about democratization or, or population gr growth? The reason is because Canada is going to be the leader in helping the rest of the globe decarbonize. Uh, now, while we're doing all of that, uh, we're going to transform the energy industry in Canada. We're going to help uh, customers conserve energy. We're going to... Uh, um, increase energy efficiency in, in terms of everything, uh, and we're also going to decarbonize using a whole bunch of different means. We really need uh, to establish a, a relationship with consumers, with voters, with governments, whereby they're no longer fighting against us. They understand that we understand the complexities of what's going on here. Our job is to make sure that electricity remains reliable, environmentally responsible and low cost. That trifecta, uh, in, in view of all of the rest of the stuff that's going on, is a very, very complex problem. So we don't need people to, to trust us uh, and, and, and sort of uh, acknowledge that we know best. We don't. What we, what we need people to do is to understand that we care about all of those things just as much as everybody else does. And we're all working as fast as we can on different ways to get us to that decarbonized future. Uh, now, 
I'm from Alberta. Alberta doesn't have uh, a whole bunch of hydro like Manitoba and BC do, but we are decarbonizing our grid in the best way that we can using storage, using uh, uh, carbon capture, utilization and storage, converting carbon into useful products and so on. And, and so what we need is for people to help us. The other thing that we're doing is as an industry, I mean, we've all seen what happened to California. In California, everybody who could afford to do so got put a solar panel on their roofs. Uh, and so the, the industry was scrambling because if you think about the way that electricity rates are set, it's the total number of users in the numerator and the, the total cost of the system in the denominator. Well, if you take all of the wealthiest users out of that ratio, what you've left is the entire cost of the system left to be paid for by the balance of consumers who are the ones that can least afford to, to do it. And so we're working on social aspects of this as well. Work with us, that's what we need, and we need to create a new relationship with, with consumers, voters, and governments that has us all working together on an all-of-the-above solution to get us to a decarbonized future as fast as possible, which is also low-cost and reliable. Thanks, Kate. Uh, Jay, do you want to add in there? Uh, so, you know, as Kate alluded to, Manitoba Hydro is 99% dependable green renewable power. We are 98% hydro and 1% uh, wind. Um, in, in our industry, we also have surplus power. And so the role we see ourselves playing is twofold. One, supporting our neighbors, and we already do. We export power to Saskatchewan in terms of their reducing their carbon footprint, as well as south into the United States. The discussions we're having with, uh, with government federally is would there not be greater value in keeping those dependable electrons in Canada to achieve the objectives that are set federally? So historically, utilities have been provincially focused. With this new discussion, and as Francis alluded to, and, and as Kate said, the coordination side of things is critical because we are now evolving to taking a federal view. And who takes responsibility and ownership for that? And how is that shaped? And how do we engage? Because each of us, as a utility, has a different role to play. But it has to be coordinated, it has to be integrated, and it has to be done in a planned way. So many things have to be thought about from a regulatory perspective, all of the way to, to where do we make investments and where do we not. Uh, I'm gonna just add a, a little bit uh, more of a, uh, a thought to take away from the discussion. Uh, agree wholeheartedly with what Kate and Jay have mentioned. Uh, I think there, this is a very common, it was described as a wicked problem for those who have heard that uh, phrase before. Uh, the trifecta of affordability, <coughs> reliability. You know, everyone complains about their bills in the summer, but they complain about reliability in the winter. So that's that's true in a, in a, in a northern climate. So we can't ever uh, discount how how affordability and reliability are paramount in this discussion. But um, I think I'm gonna just, the thought is electrification, um, I think is a misnomer. I think when we use electrification as a broad term, we're missing the point that what we're really chasing is emissions reduction uh, and the carbon intensity of the energy delivery system. So when people say electrification, they assume because we're 82% uh, clean on our electric grid in Canada, as, uh, as Francis mentioned, they assume that everything you use electricity for, it's gonna be that 82% clean. But, 80, but electricity is 
about 20% nationally of end-use energy. In BC, it's about 18%. So when you consider taking that grid that's only delivering 18% of end-use energy in Canada, different jurisdictions, a little bit different numbers, but uh, you're talking about uh, a massive, massive increase in the generation of electricity and a massive, massive increase in the infrastructure to deliver it. Uh, in BC, a couple of weeks ago, we had our uh, we had our, our winter minus eight. We'll rebuild. Aww. <laughs> yeah, pumpkin. it was, it was a struggle. Yeah. Uh, but on that day, I I got numbers just roughly. I think BC Hydro or the electric grid ours and BC Hydro combined about 11,000 megawatts uh, on a peak day. Uh, the gas uh, grid didn't hit a peak or a design day. Delivered 1.6 petajoules, about 21,000 megawatts equivalent. So on, on one day, you can see, in, in a nutshell, the enormity of the challenge. So when we talk about electrification, uh, we really need to target what we're talking about because in BC, 41% of emissions come from transportation. 6% comes from home heating because of our climate. It may be a different mix in, uh, in Manitoba. So when we think about the solution, it's what's the most cost-effective, reliable way to get emissions reductions? Uh, and for us, we see the natural gas uh, delivery system uh, is well-suited for peak uh, delivery. It's well-suited for long-season uh, or long-cycle energy storage. Uh, we're looking at renewable gases and hydrogen blended or delivered directly to the home and allow the electrons to go to something that's, uh, that's uh, got a lower marginal abatement cost, which would be transportation and upstream oil and gas. So I think the discussion from a general perspective is there's a path, but each jurisdiction is going to have to look at their mix and try to find the most cost-effective way to get those emissions reductions. Electrification sometimes is used as a, a shorthand for that, but we really got to be careful in that because in certain jurisdictions, I think uh, those in Alberta, they hit their uh, peak, minus 45. I admit that's a bit colder than ours, but uh, and uh, solar and wind contributed very little to the resource stack on those days for various reasons. So if you're arguing that you electrify everything and you hit a winter peak, you may actually increase the carbon intensity because you're going to be relying on uh, base load generation. So this discussion is getting uh, more complex, but at least we're now having a discussion on what I think is an integrated approach uh, using our existing energy systems. Uh, the, uh, the analogy is, you know, 30 years ago when we really started to have the discussion about climate change, uh, you know, you didn't cut electric wires because you're moving coal-fired electricity down the wires you got rid of coal, or you're getting rid of coal. You're moving to natural gas, you're moving to wind and solar. So I see, you know, the it's the decarbonization is the focus. So let's move hydrogen and natural gas uh, for thermal. Let's use electricity for, for industry and transportation and, and get to a more focused uh, strategy across the country using uh, each jurisdiction's natural uh, attributes to make sure that we're, we're hitting the, the key, which is emissions reduction. Thanks, Roger. Uh, yeah, you mentioned minus 45. Uh, Edmonton had the dubious honor this year of actually being colder than both the North and South Pole one day. Kate and I both <laughs> live there, and my first thought is minus eight. That's short weather, but uh, moving on. Um, <laughs> Jay, you, you mentioned uh, uh, coordination and, and the need for a federal discussion, um, and, I, and that goes, leads beautifully into our next question. So, you know, risk of rise whenever multiple policy tools are deployed in pursuit of a single objective such as carbon reduction. And the incremental costs associated with a new layer of regulation may way, well outweigh the incremental benefits. I think you mentioned 90 different regulations that apply federally. 
um, and just layer on multiples more in, in each provincial's jurisdiction. Um, and and those, those different layers can absolutely get in the way of investment and innovation upon which solutions actually depend at the end of the day. Um, worse yet, one regular, regular, regulatory tool may in practice work at actual cross-purposes with the end goal, and that happens far too often, unfortunately. So, Roger, maybe I'll start with you, but in your view, what is the role of regulations and policies that could mitigate the impact of some of the legislative changes that are out there today? Um, I'm going to maybe shock the crowd, but I think regulation has actually served industry quite well. <clears throat> you know, we tend to, as, as regulated utilities, um, highlight uh, differences, but I think if you consider energy delivery in Canada, uh, the relative value, the high reliability, uh, the uh, phenomenal safety record, I think regulation for the most part uh, has done its job and done its job well. <clears throat> I think the, the challenge with regulation uh, is that policy has shifted where the regulator, which is typically uh, utility regulator, there's many different regulators, but let's use utility regulators, which is the one that we're most commonly associated with. They're an economic and technical regulator at heart. So you've got the introduction uh, in the last decade of <clears throat> environmental policy, which is basically <clears throat> superseding in many ways energy policy, or at least uh, uh, working in conjunction with energy policy. Uh, economic uh, regulation has decades and decades of, uh, of uh, history, of it's well-defined, um, and it's, it's measurable, it's economic or it's technical. You get into environmental policy, you get into social uh, considerations, it doesn't fit easily into uh, the math of traditional utility regulation. So, you know, I, th I think the, the, the onus on this one is not necessarily that the regulator has to change. It's not, it's not all at the feet of the regulator. I think a couple things have to happen in this space. One is uh, policymakers, government, they typically set policy, regulation then follows. Policy is not legislation. It, it, it precedes legislation. The regulator has, in each jurisdiction I'm aware of, has a, 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 a piece of legislation in BC, it's the Utility Commission Act. That's what they're at law. Uh, required to follow. So they're trying to fit in policy within, you know, the four corners of actual legislation. So I think when government is laying out uh, policy, uh, I think it's incumbent on them to engage industry, the, the, when I say industry, the utility industry specifically, uh, to understand how best to turn that policy into legislation that fits within regulation. I think there's also a role with uh, customer groups and the utilities to um, collaborate much earlier on initiatives that are addressing government policy uh, to allow the regulator to see a path forward. I, an example here in BC uh, on, the <clears throat> on, the, uh, on the natural gas side, uh, we started uh, 10 years ago renewable natural gas programs. We're the first jurisdiction in North America where a customer can select on their bill what percentage of the commodity comes from renewable natural gas. So we have about 10,000 customers uh, out of our million customers that pay a premium to have renewable natural gas from landfill, landfill agricultural waste, uh, things like that. And it comes at a premium. But when we first rolled that out, uh, you know, it, it, took, it took a number of years to get that established through the regulatory process because it cost more, so it didn't meet an economic test. Um, we didn't have 
uh, clear environmental uh, policies on emissions reduction. So it was, it was a social good, but it wasn't well defined as a social good. So, you know, we fast forward 10 years later and here in BC, we're looking at developing a renewable portfolio standard for natural gas of 15% of our natural gas coming from renewable sources. So, you know, that's not something that happens overnight, but it's something that, you know, it, it takes a lot of collaboration from customer groups and government giving clear direction to the regulator who still has to fit within the four corners. So, so I think this is, um, it's easy to say, well, it's a regulator or it's policy, but you've got to really think about how it fits within what's already been established and worked really well uh, and not throw away uh, decades of uh, very efficient regulation uh, uh, for, for, for sort of a, a singular policy focus. Okay. Um, the, I actually think uh, about how much our industry is changing and what is the future role of regulation. If you look at, at the model, typically you had a number of utilities and they were larger scale and we were all regulated one process. You know, we all understood that. Now the number of market entrants in this industry is going up dramatically. But there is no model to ensure that the good for all of, all of the residents of Canada are considered. So a, a model that managed energy that made sure it was reliable, that made sure it was cost effective, that made sure it was safe, is changing with new entrants coming in. And if this isn't thought through and done in a planned and managed way, we're creating risks for our customers, for Canadians. And how does that happen, both within provinces, but also from a federal perspective? My concern, to be quite honest, is this pace of change is increasing every single minute. We are already behind in Canada in our thinking here. And it's already moving. And in an industry where decisions are being made, we're in an industry that's capital intensive. We're locking in certain parts of what that whole energy value chain will look like without perhaps having thought it through and on an integrated basis. So, you know, I think uh, the call to have a federal framework and federal policy that is then coordinated and integrated is critical. Otherwise, we're creating incredible risk, incredible risk. You look at the U.S. where you've seen the uptake of solar much greater here than here in Canada. What are all the debates that are happening there with the regulators? With the amount of solar coming in, the, the interface between for the customer is the wires. That is where the bi-directional flow of energy is coming. Energy always used to flow this way. It's now going to flow this way. And, and the grid and the system needs to be built out and managed to handle that. And the biggest debate with regulators is, well, who invests and how much do you invest? And already it's creating risk with reliability. So my concern is reliability will be threatened in the future unless we get on this and get clear policy, regulation, and legislation, federally and within provinces. Okay. Well, I, I, uh, I mostly agree with both of you. I, um, I think that the reason that we've had uh, very stable regulation over the last few decades is because we've had very stable governments. And at the moment, uh, uh, I agree with Jay completely, 
uh, change is coming uh, because not everybody that looks at the electric system is solving for the same X. Some of them are solving for Y as well. And uh, so that will definitely require coordination in order to avoid unintended consequences of consideration of externalities like carbon, like provincial economies, et cetera, et cetera, in the regulation. Much, much greater coordination and, and forethought is required as we work our way through this, and it has to be done very, very quickly. And so I, I would just sort of get back to my point about we need to quit uh, sort of locking heads. We need, we need to get down, sit around the table and figure out what needs to be done together and, and do it very quickly because you're quite right, Jay, the pace of change is not going to slow down. No. I, I'm going to jump in on this one. Uh, I, I think the other piece that needs to be there is it needs to be, a, uh, to your point, Kate, it needs to be a conversation between industry and, and government. Um, governments always work with the best of intentions, but don't always have the, the inside knowledge of how systems work and how they can grow and how they can change. And uh, just a, uh, an example, the federal government came in with a, a new uh, output-based performance standard for electricity in, gosh, when was that, October? last year, and, oh, sorry, sorry, June of, of last year, um, that would have seen uh, the carbon footprint of Alberta increase by 94 megatons because they were trying to solve for a different problem in Ontario. And they hadn't talked to industry and they hadn't reached out. They've done some things now to fix that, fortunately, but yeah, you, you saw policy being made in a vacuum that actually went down the wrong path and, and had an unintended consequence. And that's why you need to have the conversation with the, not me, but with the experts in, in the electricity field who understand these systems and, and what the impacts of different policy can be. Because and again, policy made in isolation is very dangerous. Um, moving on to our last question uh, before you folks get to chime in. Um, regulatory barriers notwithstanding, CEA members are reinventing all aspects of their operations in the interest of producing cleaner and more reliable electricity and uh, of improving the efficiency uh, with which it is delivered and used and allowing customers to engage more proactively with smartphones and other things um, in managing their electricity needs. As an immutable structure of the recent past, more with, uh, past, uh, more with each passing month, but what key risk factors arrive in, innovation, in the innovation context? Um, is there a possibility that EVs prove to be just a transitional technology on, on the way to Francis's hydrogen floating vehicles? Um, and, and what are the key dimensions of the ongoing transformation of the customer relationship, which is critical in our industry? Um, and what are the risks, opportunities, uh, current responses, and or policy needs um, associated with each of those? And maybe I'll start with you, Jay. So I, I shared with you earlier, we are a fully integrated utility. We generate, we transmit, and we distribute, as well as uh, we distribute natural gas. So for Manitoba Hydro, as much as we are our neighbors uh, to the south of us and uh, west and east of us look at us and say, well, Manitoba Hydro, because you're hydro-based, your electrons are green, they are dependable, you, you're, you're, in, you're in a good spot. There's positives, opportunities for us, but there's also material risk. We're in the process of developing a long-term 20-year strategy. Why? In our industry, you need to think that long-term because of the decisions we make and the scale and nature of our investments. Right now, in another two years, we'll have finished a major hydro project that will have cost $8.7 billion when it's finished, and it took 16 years from original design concept to when it will be completed. 
the risk that we face in Manitoba Hydro, which might be different than, than um, in other provinces, is we've invested $30 billion and we are a crown, i.e., who are we owned by? The residents of Manitoba. The risk is that we will have stranded assets. So there's two concepts in our industry. There's the concept of grid parity. And grid parity is when the behind the meter, the renewable, the solar, that energy, whether you actually uh, buy solar panels or whether you lease them from Tesla, which is something they're doing in, in cities in the States for $50 a month, they'll install it, they'll remove it whenever you want so that you don't, you don't even invest the capital. Our customers will be talking to, and, and you'll see the pursuit of our customers by these different market entrants. And that's a good thing. But our customers need to be informed that you may go and add solar, but you're still connected to the grid. You're looking for that reliability, that battery in our reservoirs and in our storage. And we, Kate talked about our, our, our cost structure, which is primarily fixed. 80% uh, of our cost structure is fixed cost because it ties solely back to the assets on our balance sheet. So customers will be making decisions about do I want to go with renewable solar or wind, you know, residential or even the, the commercial customers without being fully informed. One of the things I believe our job at Manitoba Hydro is to ensure our customers are informed as they make their choices. Because in this new landscape, customers will be making the choices. They will choose where they want to invest and how, what source of energy that they want. That is grid parity, and we see that coming based on our models and analysis anywhere from 2023 to 27. So in a fixed cost structure, we will see our revenues go down as customers make choices, and what does that mean? Those that are still connected to the grid will pay more for that power. And um, the concept is energy policy, uh, poverty. But there are tools because there's new models and regulation looking at uh, connection fees, which is if you want to stay connected to the grid for the insurance, the reliability for when the sun isn't shining, then there is a cost associated with that. So the model has to be thought through on how do we actually uh, create new services, new, new, new customer offerings, and price it fairly and equitably. The, the issue that really scares me is not grid parity, because I believe we can manage that by informing our customers and also leveraging the power we have in other ways, is grid defection. And what grid defection is, is when customers can totally disconnect, whether it's in microgrids, whether it's an individual house with the battery storage, you can 100% disconnect from the grid, the entire system. And we see that with, I mean, the technology on utility scale battery storage and what is happening there, we anticipate that could occur in Manitoba by 2035. We have a model where we build 100-year multi-generational assets. So how do we then position ourselves and Manitoba to leverage the assets that have been invested in? Well, there's also opportunities for us. With the increased demand for dependable, because we are dependable with our reservoirs, 
green electrons, we're very proactive on how we can support the reduction in GHG through using green dependable electricity. And for example, there are discussions federally around a transportation corridor. When they talk about the electrification of transportation, the discussion has really been more broadly about a western transportation corridor and an eastern one. And so Tesla just finished in uh, installing charging stations from the west coast all the way to Manitoba, and now they're looking on the east coast side. But where are the electrons going to come from? And they have to be green because it's all about reducing GHG, and they need to be dependable, particularly for fleets. That is where the greatest opportunity is in transportation, which is the big movement of goods. There's also opportunities, though, by electrifying cities. And I believe the electrification of cities and transportation will occur before the larger uh, transportation corridor, just because that is still manageable in current regulatory models in terms of the current legislation versus what is required for an electrified transportation corridor requires a fundamental change, as Roger was referring to, in terms of policy, in terms of legislation, and in terms of regulation. So we are very proactive in ensuring we recognize the risk, but are positioning ourselves for the opportunities because of the hydro we have. And not saying I'm recommending or advocating large-scale hydro projects, but in terms of our hydrology, after we key, complete the KIAS project, we will have only built out 60% of the available capacity for green electrons from hydro. Thank you. Uh, Roger or Kate? Um, I was at a discussion with the chief economist of the IA a couple years ago, and he said something that, that resonated uh, uh, on this innovation file. He said, it's, everyone should have no issues with their taxi ride to the airport being disrupted or, you know, how they order their takeout meal through Skip the Dishes or whatever app you use. Winnipeg Company. Yep. <laughs> Good ads, uh, John Hamm. Uh, but he said nobody should want their energy system disrupted when you consider what it enables. Like, you, you go a week without energy. Who here has been without energy or electricity for a week? Right, so how is that? Is that fun? Uh, so... You know, you see California with, uh, for different reasons, rolling uh, uh, brownouts or restricted uh, electricity. So this concept of disruption uh, is great. Innovation is great. I think the industry, uh, you know, utility and innovation, people don't put together as as a common uh, uh, link. But you know, we've got history of innovation. Uh, a lot of it's people don't see, they just come home, they flip on lights, electricity's there, natural gas is there. But the amount of innovation that goes into our industry is quite significant on how we deliver, mm -hmm. uh, uh, how we manage, how we use data analytics on, on load forecasting, all those things that go into it. But, but the concept that Jay's referring to this, uh, you know, we've got a facility, uh, Upper Bonington, we're doing a refurbishment on uh, 1907. So it's 113 years old and we're doing unit life extension on four turbines uh, and they may run for another 100 years, right? So as an industry, uh, our concern is regulation. Uh, w w you know, we welcome innovation. Uh, it's key to our success. So the key how we meet our goals uh, on customer engagement, on carbon reduction, 
on uh, reliability, all the things that we're focused on. But those investments take, you know, they're 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You don't want utilities worried about the recovery of those investments, maybe not making those investments if they don't have a clear uh, regulatory framework to make sure that the innovation as it's being adopted, being rolled out, also considers the value of the grid that's already in place. Because then you're going to have decisions that are not made with the customer at the center. You're going to have decisions made with, okay, how do I deal with stranded assets? So uh, innovation, you can't stop it. Uh, it's going to happen no matter what. That's just the nature of, uh, of who we are, which is, which is good. It enables amazing things. But I think it's one thing that's understated in this whole discussion is uh, the nature of the delivery uh, system has, is shifting and there's really nothing you can do about it. It's just making sure that policymakers are thinking about uh, those impacts because not everyone's going to be treated fairly. The solar example is really, uh, is really an interesting one. We have a net metering program in our electric uh, system uh, up to 50, uh, 50 kilowatts you can uh, put on a solar or, or micro wind. Uh, we buy back. Uh, 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 I think most utilities will have uh, a similar program under a different name. When those programs were first rolled out, the price was set at the at the uh, the, the retail rate. So you had a, a bunch of people who could afford it, putting on max solar. They didn't need it, but they were just you know it was a revenue stream. So who's paying for that? Those who didn't have the capital to install solar. So uh, most utilities have now gone to a marginal cost structure where we'll buy it if we need it, which is what it should be. And there's a hue and cry about, okay, well, you know, you're stifling innovation. Well, well, no, it's really an equity issue because who's left paying for the assets that they rely on? It becomes the group that can least afford it. So, you know, that's just one example of, of this nexus of how you regulation has to shift, but you also want to uh, uh, continue to uh, enable innovation. At the end of the day, um, we're all users of innovation. It's really how do you make sure there's an equitable balance on, on you know, what you're using now as you do that transition. So I have a completely different situation. We are investor-owned. We're not a crown corporation. Uh, and we don't have a rate base. Uh, so every penny we invest in decarbonization is a risk because that's a penny that we're taking out of our shareholders' pockets and banking on the fact that investors will see that we're doing this, we're doing the right thing, and will reward us for that. Uh, and by the way, that's not assured. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, um, I guess, uh, competitors uh, who haven't, haven't done that yet. And so uh, we are looking, I mean, you've all read the uh, environmental, social, and governance reports and the, the analysis that's done of all of us. Uh, there, are, there are a number of, of companies that have sort of gone out to the forefront and are leading the fight against climate change or are re leading the fight on uh, women in management and so on and so forth. And, and, and they are doing so because it's the right thing to do. But uh, we, uh, we take risks that we will actually be costing our shareholders money when we, when we for example, we're investing hundreds of millions of dollars in this center that's going to capture carbon and turn it into carbon nanotubes. Uh, now, we can sell those carbon nanotubes and apply that revenue to offset the cost of capture, which is the right thing to do, but it still costs money. At the end of the day, it's still costing our shareholders money. And so uh, this, we uh, serve, or I guess we, we, uh, uh, we hope to survive a completely different set of risks than either of my colleagues on, on the panel here. 
Great. Well, thank you. Let, let's uh, maybe we'll open it now to you folks to ask your questions. Uh, we have a microphone in the middle. Um, welcome. Any questions at all? And I know my panelists are glad to ask answer your questions because they actually know more about this industry than, than uh, many do. Please. Good morning. I'll kick things off at least to start. Uh, my name is Tim Carlson. I'm with the International Partnership for Hydrogen and Fuel Cells in the Economy. So it's a government-to-government -government organization. Canada is a member, as are 19 others. Uh, I have kind of two questions. Uh, one is around um, the regulatory structure and integrating the electrons, whether it's in gaseous form or in copper wire. And if the utilities, and it's a great panel here because you have the crosswalks, I'm just wondering if the regulatory framework is looking at that holistically, and if Canada's federation structure will actually allow for that longer term thinking, that's one question. Uh, I know in Europe, for example, uh, they've had to deal with the legal obligation where utilities cannot play in each other's backyard. And so they've had to adjust that to allow hydrogen to be converted and used in different. The other is um, the long-term vision around hydrogen. Um, Australia, some Australian industries have a tagline. They're going to export sunshine. And so, uh, you know, Kawasaki Heavy Industries just launched a ship for the transport of hydrogen from Australia to Japan. And so that's what they're, this is a longer-term plan. But <clears throat> that's kind of some of the thinking that's going on there. So I'm wondering if... The utility and regulatory structure has that longer-term vision as well. So both can the utilities play in each other's backyard using the electron in whatever form, and then the global long-term picture of uh, electricity, clean electricity, being a commodity on the global market. I'm, uh, I'm happy to uh, start uh, only because we're looking at hydrogen in both forms here in BC, uh, given uh, our footprint on both electric and, and gas. So uh, I would say that the regulation in, in BC um, is, uh, it's, it's, I think it's generally there. The, the question for hydrogen, uh, the way we're looking at hydrogen, just, as, just to back up, is uh, as uh, sort of really three forms. One is a blend uh, into our natural gas system, so just to decarbonize the natural gas stream. Uh, renewable gases from landfill, uh, agricultural waste, uh, woody biomass, hydrogen, uh, those can all be blended. In, in Holland, there's uh, a city that has about 20% of the, 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 nat the gas uh, comes from hydrogen. Uh, I know that there's plans to, I think Hong Kong's like 52% hydrogen. So this is not new technology. I mean, this, if I had a battery and a glass of water, uh, I can produce hydrogen here, it's very simple. Uh, but it's expensive. So uh, green hydrogen uh, versus blue hydrogen, steam, methane, reformation, uh, there's different forms of hydrogen. Uh, it becomes, uh, it's the cost justification because it is quite expensive. So I think it's really about how do you price um, uh, the hydrogen relative to electricity versus natural gas and, and the structure that'll put the proper price on it. So I think the framework's there, but I think you need scale and you need a cost reduction. On the on the electric side, uh, to use, it, it's a bit of a different situation in BC because with BC Hydro and our 
uh, system. We're 93, 97% uh, hydro-based, similar to Manitoba. So uh, the opportunity in BC is really around uh, gaseous form, either in closed loop systems for industrial applications, uh, in transportation, uh, or uh, blending uh, directly into the natural gas system to decarbonize uh, the, the, the carbon intensity of, of uh, thermal applications. Uh, as far as the export, I know ATCO, is anyone from ATCO in the room? Um, they, uh, they have a, a document uh, uh, that really uh, goes to 20, uh, the year 2100, and they have a vision. Uh, they're doing hydrogen in one of their Australian uh, utilities there. Uh, they see hydrogen export as an opportunity. They see uh, hydrogen in the Alberta framework, given the large thermal load, as a massive, massive opportunity. So I think hydrogen, um, as someone said, it's, uh, it's, it's once again the future, uh, the fuel of the future. It's been the fuel of the future for about 100 years. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I think you see what's happening in Europe. You see um, the IEA has a hydrogen uh, in their, their latest World Energy Outlook. They, they, they started to show hydrogen as a, as a future use. So I think uh, it's, a, it's a long answer to get to a short answer, which is I think you're going to see hydrogen play a bigger role. And I think it's going to play both. It's going to play a gaseous form, but also an uh, electron form. Uh, because at the end of the day, when we go back to the numbers that Francis is referring to, um, if 35 to 40% of the end use energy in Canada is uh, refined products in transportation, um, going to large scale generation in this country is not the easiest thing to build. Anyone who's you know uh, built a dam recently knows that these are, you know, years and years and years of planning, of construction, of regulatory process. So I think um, we're going to be using all sorts of levers. I think hydrogen is one that's finally getting the attention because it is scalable. I, I would just like to, I was going to call it, shout out to ATCO as well, uh, and, but there are others. Uh, and so Capital Power has undertaken that we will never build natural gas infrastructure again that isn't also hydrogen compatible. Uh, just tying all of this up, what I would say is that the utilities are on this. Uh, policymakers are sort of on this and regulation will follow. Uh, I'm looking at my friend from uh, Emissions Reduction Alberta here, and she's smiling because she agrees <laughs> that the policymakers are kind of on this. Uh, but but that's because the reason that uh, for that is because uh, you know I, I renovated my house recently, and and my contractor said you can have low cost, done well, or fast pick two, and uh, in in uh, electricity <laughs> generation you can have reliable, low cost, or clean pick two. And uh, so, so the policy question is exactly the cost question that Roger was talking about, and, and we are getting there, uh, but um, it, it's, uh, it's a very complex problem. I would just add to that, as I said, we also distribute natural gas in Manitoba, and natural gas is now the new coal in terms of, and, and so both Roger and I, we're, you know, we're involved with the Canadian Electricity Association, and then and with our other hats, it's the Canadian Gas Association. So in Manitoba, we use natural gas for heating, space heating. And policies were being set around, you know, you, you need to reduce the natural gas and um, all sorts of things. And so we did an analysis to say, how much energy would that take in other forms? And we have about another 4,000 megawatts we can build on our system. It is 7,000 megawatts of green dependable electrons that would be required to decarbonize 100% natural gas. 
we don't even have that capacity in our system to do that. So we naturally have to start to look to other options, and which is why hydrogen, renewable natural gas, and the like, in order to, um, in order to still have that as part of the energy solution, because, but signals are being sent that will start to, to result in, in more movement there. I, I have to jump in, I'm sorry, Jay. Uh, natural gas is not the new coal because we're going to <laughs> convert the carbon the from it. Yeah, and, that's and we're, 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 we, we will decarbonize natural gas generation by 2050. I, I, I will be retired by then, but I guarantee it. Good point, actually. Right. And Siemens came out uh, a year ago, and actually, their their goal is by 2025, every one of their gas turbines going forward will be uh, hydrogen ready. And the J class already is. Yeah. So it's it's industry is moving. As Kate said, though, we need the policymakers to kind of get to that next step. Please. Good morning, everybody. My name is Anne-Raphaël Audouin. I'm the president of CEO of uh, Water Power Canada. We are the national trade association that represents all hydro producers uh, in the country and their suppliers of goods and services. Uh, most of you on the panel are members of our association. My question is about electrification. So as um, a representative of the hydro sector, we're always looking at new opportunities for growth um, and also areas where um, we can help the country decarbonize. So my question is about uh, that opportunity and what you see as priorities maybe in terms of uh, realizing that opportunity. Um, you know, as, as Roger pointed to and, and Francis's slide, to build large-scale hydro projects with the uh, Bill C-68 and Bill C-69, which have added greater time, greater risk to, to moving projects forward. I don't anticipate we'll see large-scale projects in the future. I believe the focus will be on leveraging all of the other forms of energy and really optimizing your system uh, for reliability, and the lowest possible cost. Where I do see opportunities is what we're looking at is we have 100-year-old assets. What we're looking at is what can we do with the hydrology and the water flow to get more dependable green electrons as we are refurbishing, redesigning. So that is where I believe there will be more done around hydropower to create more electrons uh, versus the building of large-scale hydro projects because of what Kate referred to, it doesn't matter whether you're a crown or investor owned, the risk associated with the investment required. Um, there's a, a project in Manitoba, which would have been the next one, which would have been another 1,100 megawatts. Mm -hmm. And we were working on it, mm -hmm. and we'd invested about 380 million before we stopped. Mm -hmm. So we invested 380 million before we even touched anything, and we stopped. I would, uh, I would add, um, we did a study here in BC. We engaged uh, Navigant Consulting. Uh, we gave them sort of the four corners of a mandate. Uh, take 2050, 80% reduction in uh, BC emissions by 2050. Uh, two pathways, uh, we call the electrification pathway, which still has natural gas in it, uh, but more limited, and then what we called a diversified pathway, which is uh, renewable gas, hydrogen heavy pathway, so you're still using the delivery system. And both paths are achievable, uh, but uh, 
and both will be very costly. Uh, the question, though, is uh, how much more costly? Uh, if you think about uh, the 7,000 megawatts, I think, in, in BC, uh, because there is no low-hanging fruit, if you will. We're, most, we're pretty much a hydro-based system in BC. Uh, and we don't have heavy industry. We have, you know, our, our emissions pie is 41% transportation, 25% oil and gas upstream. So that's 65, 66%. You throw in industry, another, call it 20%. Um, and of that industry, only a small portion is, is natural gas consumption. Uh, the agricultural waste, I think, is, is 10%. Uh, thermal load is, I think, 10% or thereabouts. So when you look at, to your point, how do you decarbonize when you think about uh, you know, uh, hydro uh, or electricity providing 18% of end use, you've got to find significant, significant, large-scale, clean, reliable base load mm -hmm. and think about how long it takes to build. We're, we're in the process of Site C here, which is a great project uh, up north, phenomenal uh, uh, site to visit if you find yourself there to see how you uh, undertake major projects uh, by BC Hydro. But that project's probably more than 10 years in the making and it's still not done. Mm -hmm. So when you consider just electrification at 41%, it's, maybe it's three or four site sees, just ballpark. So this is where nobody's debating the end goal, right? Mm -hmm. Like we need to reduce emissions. Like that's not up for debate anymore. Like I hope we're past that debate. Uh, the question now is- In Canada is, we are. Yes. Well, that's. Uh, Focus on Canada. <laughs> but so I think now the debate has really gotten to the point where it should have been quite a while ago is how best to do it when we still want to uh, solve the trifecta of reliability, affordability in the winter, winter climate. My sister utility is part of the Forest family is Tucson Electric Power, you know, 1.2 million electric customers in Tucson. And they're doing phenomenal work with solar and, and wind with uh, natural gas uh, backup. But their peak is middle of the day in July where solar is perfectly suited. Canada's peak is typically winter. a winter peak at night in, you know, when you don't have uh, solar or you not, may not have wind and it's not in load center. You're not putting wind farms in Vancouver. You're not putting solar in Vancouver. So you need all the hydro we can get and I think we will see, I, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit more optimistic because I think the, the, the imperative for hydro will get movement, I hope. <laughs> so I think we still have some opportunity there. But even if we had no impediments to building, as Jay says, there's only so much that is a, that is that will be scalable. Yeah. Uh, we have most of the hydro, large-scale hydro in place. Mm -hmm. So in that perspective, you do have to consider how it marries up and, and using the electrons we currently have for the lowest cost, the low-hanging fruit, if you will. That's mm -hmm. why I think uh, transportation um, in, and upstream are two to, to the biggest. I mean, Canada's emissions are 700 million, 1.5% globally. I think Alberta's 260 of that. So, you know, and a lot of that is, is oil sands. Well, if that production is going to stay there, then how do we electrify and bring down that as, as, as one? Yeah. Bit of a long answer, sorry. Francis is crouched. He's going to. I just wanted to say, just to get back to uh, your earlier point, I think we have to. We have to get away from polarization. This is not a zero-sum game. As you say, the common goal is just to reduce emissions. And so if, if in Alberta, for example, on the coldest day, minus, Tim's minus 42, 
the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. We, we just need to bear all of those things in mind and we need an all of the above solution and we need to get everybody working in the same direction rather than fighting about what's gonna be a winner and what's gonna be a loser. Let's just, just, let's just fill our boots with everything possible so we get there as fast as possible. And not piecemeal. Right. Yeah. All right, um, our, the, the Globe 2020 program, of course, is, is about, to, about to launch, so we'll bring this panel to a close. Um, Jay mentioned um, that, you know, uh, one of the things that, that, that was important for you was to make sure that customers are informed. Uh, and so uh, I think uh, this panel has done a good job of making sure that the attendees are informed about some of the, uh, some of the issues that we're facing. Uh, and of course, I, I mean, I, I can't uh, resist uh, one further reference to the Jetsons. Uh, and so, <laughs> so, so the, 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 the Jetsons, um, when I talked about their, their, their work and uh, such, a, such a difficult, hardworking uh, uh, group of people that they were, they worked an hour a day twice a week. And so I want to thank the panel for putting in almost an entire week's work <laughs> today, <laughs> in the future. Uh, and, and thank you, thank you for, for a very informative discussion. Uh, and I want to thank all of the attendees who joined us this morning uh, for the launch of uh, our uh, State of the Electricity Industry 2020. And please join me in thanking our panel. Thank you very much. <laughs>